This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Paul Barclay. On This Big Ideas, a simple blueprint to tackle the climate emergency by electrifying virtually everything. Electric vehicles, electric heating, electric cooking, a decarbonised grid, all powered by cheap, clean renewables and batteries. This revolution starts at home and will save thousands of dollars a year in energy costs, create new jobs and lucrative new exports, and it's doable starting now. Better still, Australia is the perfect place to start implementing the plan. So says Saul Griffith author of The Big Switch. Is it too good to be true? Well, there's at least one stumbling block. How do you get the political leaders to swing behind something like your plan? I don't think we're going to get our political parties to be ambitious until it's demanded of them from the electorate. And I think the way we're going to motivate the electorate is to let them know what's being stolen from them to not choose this path. If we don't choose this electrify everything path, if we don't invest heavily in renewals, if we don't double down, triple down on the success we've already had on rooftop solar by doing the same thing with batteries and electric vehicles, then in effect your government is stealing thousands of dollars a year from your family and millions of dollars a year from your community. So you should get up and vote for the people who are going to actually go big and go bold on this. So I actually think you still have to get the electorate more riled up Saul Griffith has a PhD from MIT. He's an inventor, entrepreneur, founder and co-founder of numerous tech companies, and he's talking to me at the National Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne about Australia's electric future. This really came from a hobby that was energy data, so that probably speaks to my true nerd credentials, that I turned into a project with the Department of the Energy in the US studying the US energy system in detail, tracing every flow of from the, the mines uh, and from the platforms, the oil platforms, all the way through to the end uses, the toasters and the motorcycles. And then looking at how do you actually get to zero emissions from that, considering not just where the fuels come from, but the machines that use all of that energy over on the other side. And you know, we can solve a small part of this problem with biofuels, we can solve a small part of this problem with hydrogen, but when you actually look at you know, the whole system end to end, the great majority of the solution uh, is electrification of all of those machines and then supplying it with clean electricity. Renewables in Australia can do it easily. In some countries, they'll need to use some nuclear. And so I really wanted the book to be a simple plan that cut through the complicated discussion in Australia where you know, I think people are still hoping that some other miracle is going to come along. Yeah, this is just an argument that for the things in our daily lives, our cars, our kitchens, our water heaters, the technology is there and ready to go. If not today in cost, it's only one or two years away from being cost effective. And then if we do that domestic economy this decade, we buy ourselves enough time to transform Australia's export industry, which is I think where the conversation here is politically stuck, where quite honestly, the world needs us like never before. <laughs> to make the machines and the metals, particularly the metals, for this transformation, and Australia can really do extremely well. At the moment, much of the focus is on shutting down fossil fuel-driven power stations, switching to renewable power generation. Kind of the supply side is where the focus has been. Your focus on households and domestic appliances is the demand side. Why such a big focus on domestic emissions, how, how much do they contribute to the overall picture of CO2 in Australia? 42% of the emissions in the domestic economy, meaning the emissions that we use for ourselves, not emissions that are used making iron that's used elsewhere in the world. And so, or you know, our coal and our natural gas that we export elsewhere, we put those emissions elsewhere. So. 42% is what happens in our homes, another 25% roughly is what happens in our businesses, and that's your cars, that's your water heaters, it's how we heat the buildings. And so it's hugely important, and really some, with some urgency I wanted to write the book to kill this idea that 
you solve the problem just by shutting down a few coal power plants. Yes, that is good, but electricity is not the major source of our emissions in Australia, it's our vehicles. And then if we don't, if we wait 10 or 20 years until we take on the project of converting our houses from natural gas to electricity, we've left it too long. We need to do all three of these things at once. We'll come to vehicles in a minute because that's a really interesting part of the blueprint as well. Uh, you've got some great numbers and statistics in the book. We won't go into uh, a lot of them because um, they, you know, they can glaze the eyes over. But here's a good one. Uh, using existing fossil fuels, you say we each consume here in Australia and in other rich countries about 10,000 watts per person per year. We can apparently power exactly the same lifestyle with four to 5,000 watts per person per year using renewables. How far does solar, rooftop solar, perhaps solar farms go in providing that wattage to power all of our homes because it's the technology that we've really come to love, especially the rooftop solar. In fact, when I'm in the US and I'm talking to the White House, I say, if you can only do one thing right, do what Australia did for rooftop solar because it has transformed the conversation in Australia. 30% of Australian households have now had a positive experience of renewables lowering their energy costs. That's an amazing thing. So the first part of your statement was, we, yes, every one of us uses 10,000 watts. That's like there's 100 of those old 100 watt light bulbs behind me on all the time running my life. The amazing thing about electrification is it's the efficiency we always thought we needed. There's been an efficiency narrative for many decades, but actually electricity does it. If you have an electric car powered from solar, it uses less than a third the energy of your petrol or diesel car. If you use electric heat pumps to heat your water, it's a third or a quarter of the energy of if you're using natural gas. And the largest amount of energy that's wasted in Australia is when you use coal to make electricity at the big plants, 75% of the energy in that coal is lost as waste heat up the stack. So when we produce that energy instead with wind and solar, we don't create that. So this is an amazing punchline, which is you can actually have the Australian lifestyle we have now, same size cars, same size homes, for less than half the energy, just by going all electric. And then, sorry, you did say, and how much can the yep. solar on our roof? So fortunately or unfortunately, Australians have now have the biggest houses in the world, bigger than the Americans. And traditionally, the environmental narrative is living in high populous cities is best, suburbs are awful. Turns out actually that a rooftop in your suburbs can do half, maybe even more than half, if you've got a big roof with good solar exposure of that energy. I'm not arguing that we all go completely off grid. It's very advantageous that we share electricity with each other, but we, we can do probably a quarter or a half off our rooftops. So your two preferred options for the renewables that will power the electric revolution of our homes is solar, and wind, why have you gone with those two? They are the biggest resources by a huge margin. You would have to dam nearly every river in the world to power the world on hydroelectricity alone, so it can only do a fraction. You'd have to burn every tree that grows on the earth once a year if you were going to do it with biofuels, so that's not an option to do it all. Geothermal is not enough, so really the big players have to be solar and wind. Um, we have 10,000 times as much solar as we need, hundreds of times as much wind as we need. Um, we should use some of all of those other things, just the portfolio helps make it easier, but solar and wind are the, are the big hitters. You write that Australian rooftop solar is amongst the cheapest electricity provided to residential consumers anywhere in the world. What about a place like Melbourne, which has its infamous winter where the sun doesn't pop out as often as we'd like. Is solar viable in places like Melbourne and indeed in places like Hobart, although it's less important there given that they of course have so much hydro-generated power? So we've had a narrative where we struggle to think about getting to 100% um, for decades now. And we haven't really thought, well, what happens when solar is so cheap that you put twice as much out there as, as we need? And in fact, cheaper than batteries will be oversupply of solar. So in Melbourne in the winter, it's one third or one quarter of the energy that the same solar would be doing in the summer. So 
you'd think you might have to oversize your solar three or four times. That's not really true if we're using a mix of electricity in Melbourne that includes Tasmanian Hydro, includes wind in South Australia, which has the best wind resources in the world, can pull a bit of solar from Northern Territory in Queensland and Western Australia. Hopefully, if we connect Western Australia, and they stop being Texas. Um, <laughs> and they really, it is really our Texas. But if you do that, you won't need two or three times as much solar. You'll only need about 25 or 30 percent overcapacity to get us through that winter. So I, I, think I'm, I don't lose sleep over Melbourne or even Hobart's winter. I, I lose sleep about Maine or Alaska, <laughs> where we are truly a lucky country in this respect. Yeah. I mean, the great news about the switch to electric homes powered by renewables is not that it will help us just to decarbonise. It will, you say, lead to much, much lower energy prices, big household savings. You say by 2030, we could save $5,000 a year or more on energy and car expenses. How did you make that calculation? So it's a fun way that, you know, I bore my wife with these calculations all the time. You, the, Australia collects data on how every household uses energy. So there's 1.7 cars in every house. They drive 15,000 kilometres a year. We can convert that into how much petrol they use. We know how much natural gas the average Australian household uses. We know how much electricity they currently use. And you can then, because we know what the current thing is, you can then use those conversions that I mentioned any, earlier, like, well, one third of the energy from the petrol if we're doing it with electric vehicles, a quarter if we're switching the natural gas water heater to electric, a half for the stove, and you do those calculations and then you forecast into the future the cost of batteries and where the cost of solar is going, and that's how you get this number. Today, an average Australian household spends two and a half to three thousand dollars on petrol and diesel, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars on electricity and seven or eight hundred dollars on natural gas. And it, that whole price, if we get half of our energy off our rooftops and the other half from the grid, and we're just using solar is currently five or six cents a kilowatt hour delivered from our rooftops, you know, 20, 25 cents from the grid. If you do that mix, we get batteries to a couple of hundred dollars a kilowatt hour installed, which is widely believed what will happen in 2025. We get the electric vehicles cheaper than the petrol one in the showroom, again, widely believed to happen in 2025. Then your energy bills go to $800 and your car, cost of owning the car will be $1,000 or $2,000 a year cheaper as well, and then you, so that you get $5,000 a year in savings. And that power that we're pulling off the grid, that's power that's generated from, what, solar farms, wind turbines, that, that is, and the rooftop solar being fed back in to the grid? All of, all of the above. Yeah. Let's look at cars. They're a major polluter, obviously, as well as a major expense, as you just said. We all need to plan to switch to EVs. But look, as we speak, they're really expensive. They're out of reach for most Australians, even those who want to buy them. There's hardly any charging stations. There's hardly any EVs, actually. How rapidly do we need to kickstart that switch to EVs? And how do we do that? because we're operating at the moment from an incredibly low base and we're operating from, up until recently, zero political support. So I've been living in California for the last 20 years. 10 years ago, California was where Australia is today on electric vehicles. Last year, I think 20% of vehicles that were purchased in the showroom were electric in California. They've done well. Trust me, the trucks are coming, so you'll be able to buy an electric Ford Ranger in America this year for 40,000 US dollars that has a battery that can run your home for 10 days and drive more than 500 kilometres. That should have got here, except we've had bad government policy specifically around vehicles where uh, we have no emission standards, so that all of the world's automakers put us at the very bottom of the list. We haven't had a proactive vehicle charging network policy. We for ideological reasons, were unwilling to subsidise the early market while these cars were expensive. In California for the last decade, if you bought an electric vehicle, California would give you $7,000 and the US government another 2000 I might have those numbers backwards, but it was a lot of money as a rebate. That would have helped. In terms of how urgent it is, we basically need to hit a 1.8 degree target. The, what has to happen to get there is we can never buy 
a fossil fuel powered machine again. So if you really want to hit 1.5, what do you have to do? 2023, we should be trying to make sure that every car purchased in Melbourne is electric. That's not quite reasonable, so maybe we should phase it in over five or 10 years, but the ambition is, needs to be that high to get us to where we have to go. And as you said, the extra bonus with EVs is that they're a backup battery to your house as well, particularly if you get one of those trucks. I should point out at this point that you're a bit of a rev head which is unusual for, in my experience, for someone pitching environmentally sound ideas. You don't meet too many rev heads in, in that crowd, but you say actually a decarbonated Australia still has a place for the rev head. I don't know if you want to if it's decarbonate Australia, we'll lose our fears and our bubbles. <laughs> um, so I, am a, I, I, I don't love what cars have done to the world and I don't love what roads have done to the world, but I love the machine. I not so secretly own five cars that are all more than 50 years old, so I like old, interesting machines. Um, a classic Lincoln Continental and, a, and, a, and an old Fiat among them? Uh, an old, yes, the Lincoln Continental 1961. You'd know it as the car, not my one, but the model of car that JFK was shot in. Uh, and a Fiat taxi from Italy. I own a dune buggy, the crazy dune buggy, and we have a very old Land Rover and I can't remember the fifth right now. This, this is the problem. But I've, I electrified the Fiat uh, recently. We're in the process of electrifying the Lincoln. This is an amazing thing. You can now buy what's called a crate motor. Because Ford is getting into the business of electric vehicles, they will now sell you an electric motor that you can drop in to your classic American car. And I will turn my Lincoln Continental. You might recognize a Lincoln Continental as the black car from the Matrix. Yeah and mine will shortly have 600 horsepower and be four-wheel drive. And I just drove here from Sydney in a rented Tesla. It cost me about, it'll cost me $15 for the return trip. Not for the rental price, but that's the energy cost. If you think you're driving the... How do you do that on, with, with an electric vehicle? Where do, where, do you, where do you stop? How do you charge? Tesla has done a very good job in Australia of getting some very pleasant parking spots. Okay. <laughs> Um, had, a, had a couple of swims in nice places uh, where the close enough to where the, the vehicle is charging. But in about half an hour of charging four times on the way down here, which is you know roughly the right number of brakes, we made it easily. The car has 400 kilometers of range. We could have made it in two and a half charges, but we, I, I, the we is my mum. My mum came on the road <laughs> trip. But I think this is to speak to, you know if you were doing that in a petrol car today, that's a $200 round trip. In, in, in petrol or diesel. So this is the, the savings that are around the corner when we commit to making this happen in Australia. Sol Griffith, inventor, entrepreneur, engineer and author of The Big Switch, Australia's Electric Future. So the book spells out a, a simple transition really in terms of what needs to be done. Of course, the, the politics and everything else involved in getting the momentum is not simple, but it stands in stark contrast, I think, to what we are told. What we are told is that our prosperity in a wealthy country like Australia is underpinned by fossil fuels, by coal, gas, exports, the money it makes. You say the opposite, in fact. Actually, Australia is perfectly placed to be a leader, to be the international model in decarbonising. Just talk us through what it is about Australia that you believe makes us so well placed. Why do we have this uniquely beneficial pathway to decarbonising? We have not, four, not one advantage, but four. Um, first advantage is our spectacular renewables. We have the best solar in the world, we have the best wind in the world. Our second advantage, counterintuitively, is our low population density. Our low population density means that we have tons of room on our rooftops for solar. Um, it also means, however, that our grid is very big and our gas network is very big. So per unit of energy compared to the US, our electricity grid is expensive, our natural gas is expensive. So that means the incumbent here is more expensive than other places than the new competitor, which is solar and batteries. And with those advantages, we can be the first country in the world where the economics are positive for every household. To, and that's basically by, you know, if you can finance the electric vehicle, the electric induction stove, the hot water heater, again, fairly simple number of things in your life, and, we're, and you're powering that from some mix of rooftop solar and the grid, 
you will be saving money in nearly every Australian household by 2023, 2024. A lot of people with rooftop solar would love to have battery storage so that they can use their solar overnight and when the sun isn't out. At the moment, these batteries are still too expensive for most people, though they are coming down in price. When will we see those prices start to fall sufficiently that really large numbers of people will be able to use those batteries in conjunction with their uh, uh, solar PV? So if you were buying batteries wholesale um, as a manufacturer, 10 years ago they were $1,000 a kilowatt hour wholesale. That's about $100 a kilowatt hour this year. However, they're installing on the side of your house at $1,000 a kilowatt hour because there's, they're still getting up to scale, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the Ford F-150 electric, that's the big American truck that's going electric next year. It's the most produced vehicle in human history, 50 million Ford F-150s. Um, so it is enormously important that that is going electric. It will ship with about a 100 kilowatt hour battery in it for $40,000 which means that, you know, it's like one quarter the price of the batteries that you're buying in Australia today for the side of your house, and it comes with a free truck. Yeah. Um, and I think that should tell you where the ball is going here. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, in fact, the Lincoln Continental you mentioned, I'm, my wife loves the other four cars, hates that one. I don't know why she has a particular <laughs> hatred of it. And the only way I was able to sort of fit it back into our garage was to convince her that it would be the cheapest way to have a backup battery for a house was to retrofit the Lincoln with uh, a giant battery and make that the house backup. It might look like a big American car, but actually it's a battery. It's about resilience, honey. <laughs> uh, we're going to need a huge number of these batteries if every house in Australia is going to fit into your dream of a decarbonised house powered predominantly by solar and wind. Can we produce enough of these batteries quickly enough to avoid this temperature rise of 1.5, 1.8 degrees and above? We can. It's amazing. If you look at the rate of production increase for the three critical things needed for this transition, that's solar modules, wind turbines, batteries. They're all growing at more than 20% a year in terms of the production rates, and the cost is dropping every time they double the production rate by 20%. If we merely keep on the curve of the rate of growth of these three industries, the whole world would be 100% renewable powered by something like 2036 or 2037. So we are under, you know, it's unlikely that we keep going on that exponential all the way, so we'll slow down a little bit, so maybe that means 2040 or 2045. But we are on track to actually do this, um, which is an underappreciated good news story in, in climate. We've got enough of the raw materials, enough of the special metals to make enough of these batteries? Um, I don't, lithium won't really be the constraint. It's more, uh, you know, the, the rare earth metals for the, bat, um, for the magnets and, you know, we worry a little bit about the elements like cobalt, but we are changing the compositions of both the magnets and of the batteries, and you should expect that to happen over the next 10 years. So the world does have enough to do all of these things. Just a, a question that someone asked me to ask you about this, because batteries are a really big part of the future. What do we do with these batteries at the end of their lifespan? Uh, they're pretty toxic, aren't they? Can we recycle them? What do we do with all these dead batteries? So a friend of mine is a guy called J.B. Straubel. He was the fifth employee at a little startup called Tesla. He basically ran engineering there forever. He quit a few years ago and he's now running the world's biggest lithium battery recycling facility in Nevada, not too far from Tesla's factory. The batteries are very recyclable. I think actually the question is good and we should be concerned about are we going to dig ourselves in another environmental hole with this, but here's, if you'll allow me 30 seconds, the good news story. Your Australian lifestyle, anyone in the audience or out there listening today, today you use 6,000 kilograms of fossil fuels a year that you burn that becomes 20 or 30,000 kilograms of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and, you, and it, you, you just waste it all out there and throw it away. 
If we do that all-electric lifestyle for every Australian and we do it with just naively 50% solar, 50% wind, and you have to store 50% of it in batteries because it's not always sunny and windy, um, you'd only need about, and then you assume the wind turbines last 25 years, the solar cells last 20 years, the batteries last 10 years, you'll need about 20, 25 kilograms of each of those things per year per person. So that's 75 kilograms of stuff instead of 6,000. But the story is better because most of those things are quite recyclable. And if you recycle 80 or 90% of it, you're only going to need 10 or 15 kilograms of stuff per year per person to have this energy lifestyle. So we could still screw it up because humans are pretty good at screwing things up. But there is actually a pathway here if we really think about a circular economy for the, these things that are critical to have a much better outcome. So hydrogen is being hyped as the energy source of the future here in Australia. Our former chief scientist was a big enthusiast. As a result, the government's become big on this plan as well. It doesn't play much of a role at all in your blueprint. Why aren't you convinced about hydrogen? There will be some hydrogen in the future. I actually built a successful company that sold hydrogen tanks to all the world's automotive companies, so I know hydrogen in intimately, you might say. The reason I don't think it will be nearly as much as Australia is forecasting or the world is forecasting is because you, to make hydrogen renewable, it has to be green hydrogen. That means you have to start with solar or wind, generate electricity. You then have to go to electrolysis. When you do that, you lose 25% of the energy. When you compress it, because hydrogen is inconvenient gas, you lose another 10 or 15% of the energy in the compression. Then you pull it out again, and then you either have to burn it where you lose another 50%, or you have to run it through a fuel cell where you lose another 25%. No matter what, which way you look at it, you need twice or three times as many solar cells or wind turbines on the front end to go via hydrogen to one of these end uses, like driving a car or cooking your dinner or whatever they imagine that we're going to do with hydrogen. So that just inherently means it's going to be two or three times more expensive. But in fact, more, because you also have to pay for the catalyst, you have to pay for the fuel cell. So it's three times as much input plus all of this other stuff. So it's really very unlikely to play in those industries. Yes, we absolutely need it for agriculture to make um, ammonia and ammonium. So we have fertilizers, but that's about 1% of the world's energy use. You don't really need it for steel, but maybe we'll use it for steel. At most, that's another 1% of the world's energy systems. We will have so much cheap electricity in the summer that some of it we will use for electrolysis, so there'll be some hydrogen. But it's not going to be 50% of the world's energy supply, which is what the International Energy Agency forecast. It's going to be five, maybe. Um, the reason historically people love this idea, it's a little bit about national security. Germany and Japan, part of the reason they lost World War II was because they didn't have domestic liquid fuels. So they were invested heavily in trying to turn coal into a gas or a liquid fuel that would give them national security. Uh, that overinvestment in that idea is still out there. So that's in favor of hydrogen. Those are big trading partners of us. So Australian government is like, oh, they want hydrogen, we'll give it to them, but they'll wake up soon enough. And then the other reason is there's a huge lobbying industry known as the natural gas industry. They currently make all of the world's hydrogen. They are very heavily invested in, A, it helps them delay the transition. If they keep selling this thing, that's not going to happen. B, they profit from it in the short term. Um, C, you know, they think it might be jobs that look like the jobs they currently do because it's pipelines. But it's just, it's going to be a little bit, not a giant bit, and Australia should reallocate its resources accordingly. The other thing you hear is that renewables like wind and solar cannot underpin the grid as baseload power. For baseload power, you need, and if you're moving away from fossil fuels, you need something more than uh, sun and wind, which at certain times of the day, uh, there is none. Obviously, batteries are a big part of your vision. But just, can you just address that issue of baseload power? So, for example, some people say in Australia, if you want to get rid of gas and coal, you basically need to look at nuclear as providing baseload power. So I suppose there's two questions there. One is, 
this idea of baseload power and the second is why have you decided that nuclear will not be a part of Australia's energy future? I have in no way decided that nuclear is not a part of Australia's okay. nuclear fu energy future. I have visited multiple nuclear power plants. I have friends who are working in traditional nuclear. I have friends who are working in fusion. It is a viable technology. It's, it will be absolutely necessary in the Northern Hemisphere in high population density countries. Roughly, Australia could provide all of our energy with about a quarter of a percent of our land. If you're China and you, and you want everyone to live an Australian lifestyle, you'll need about 10% of your land. So they're not going to give up that much land to solar and wind. So, you know, population density determines just, and, and how far north or south you are determines just how much you'd need nuclear. We have low population density and we aren't too far south, so we're in a good shape. So we don't need it. We don't need it, and I think it's, prob you know, I think it'd be a Herculean task to get a plurality of Australians on board for nuclear on the time frame required to get it done. You have to remember, even in the US, that's pro-nuclear has 102 reactors running already. It provides 25% of its electricity. They only built one new nuclear power plant in the last 40 years. So is Australia going to build one in the 10 years required to address this problem? I think it's sadly unlikely. Hmm. And this idea of baseload power, that renewables can't provide baseload power? Wind and solar typically counter-correlate, meaning it's sunnier in the day and windier in the evenings. Um, we, there will be enough batteries that you don't strictly need baseload power. People who've already got off-grid know that you can do this. I don't see any need for permanent baseload power. Some of the industrial users will complain that they do. But here's where the ball is going again. Um, industrial solar farms are selling... You know, I sell components for industrial solar farms and we're bidding projects at two or three cents a kilowatt hour for a 20-year supply of electricity. When these batteries get to $200 a kilowatt hour, they'll have five to 10,000 cycles. They're gonna be five cents a kilowatt hour. Two plus five is seven. That's what baseload coal is producing at today. That's, you know, if they're lucky. Um, so the combination of renewables and batteries will get us there. We have great hydro in Australia that we can use for the batteries and effect effectively, if we use cleverly our geothermal and our hydro with our wind and solar mix, it starts to look like baseload. I mean, the book puts a great argument for the feasibility of this, that we're perfectly placed, we've got the renewables. But the obvious stumbling block in all of this is getting the plan implemented, basically changing the grid, changing the infrastructure, providing the incentives for households to make the switch. You write that good government policy is critical to making the switch, but in this country, there's very little enthusiasm, it seems to me, for drastic measures to combat climate change from either major political party, it should be said. How do you get the political leaders to swing behind something like your plan? You know, the book was very consciously structured into addressing what we have to win in our domestic economy first and what we have to win in the longer term in our export economy for the reason that I don't think we're going to get our political parties to be ambitious until it's demanded of them from the electorate. And I think the way we're going to motivate the electorate is to let them know what's being stolen from them to not choose this path. Having said that, the real action in Australia is at the state level, it's the same in the US. The big acting states in the US are California and New York. In fact, if you looked at the ambitions, for example, we heard about the city of Melbourne, Lily Ambrosio in Victoria, Matt Keane in New South Wales, the policies we're seeing at state level in Australia, ACT, which is doing better than both of them, are actually more ambitious than we're seeing in California and New York. If you could cherry pick the best piece of policy from Western Australia, Tasmania, South Australia, Queensland, Victoria and New South Wales and put them all together, you basically have exactly what we need. So the federal government generates a lot of its revenue from fossil fuels, which is probably why it's later to this game, the state government's care a little bit less so they can, they're not blinded to this future because it's, it's not in conflict with their interests. Yeah, and just to be clear, you don't really care which side of politics buys into this. You, 
you're not backing any particular political horse when it comes to this. Whoever does it, you're more than happy to work with. This will be the first election that I've ever voted in in Australia. I bought a one-way ticket to Alaska when I was 19, to my mother's chagrin. I've been <laughs> not voting ever since, so I can actually absolutely say with a straight face, I have no horse in any of these races. Um, I don't think any of the parties, even you know, including the Greens, have a plan that's nearly ambitious enough if, if the goal is one and a half to two degrees of climate change. I think we are in a desperate race to make this election about this issue and make the parties get ambitious in the next few months. Now, you know, that is a huge ask and that wouldn't be politics as usual, but climate change is not climate as usual. Like, we have to change the politics and we have to change it with unbelievable urgency. Uh, your personal story is interesting and you just alluded to a part of it there. I mean, you've been living in America, uh, working as an entrepreneur and inventor and running startups over there successfully and you've come back to Australia, as some people tend to do, you know, when they're thinking about their lives and their kids' lives and, and so on and the quality of life that can be offered here. But when you were in the States, you were really close with how climate policy was playing out there, working with the Biden administration. Uh, tell us about what you were doing there, what you learnt from the situation in America compared with what you witnessed about climate policy from that vantage point back here in Australia. I think it was 2006 or 2007, I said to my wife, who then was my fiance, if the world hasn't taken sufficient action on climate by 2020, I'm going to become an eco-terrorist in 2020. <laughs> um, and she's like, you know, I was far enough away and we didn't have children that she thought that was totally fine. And indeed, I would be a spectacular uh, eco-terrorist. <laughs> I know exactly how every piece of infrastructure works. I know how to make the metals fail in the right places. Um, if you need to cripple some infrastructure, come and see me after the talk. Um, anyway, that's, well, a, that's a joke, by the way. That uh, is a joke. 2019 rolled, away, rolled around and I reminded my wife of this promise that she'd made <laughs> and she said, hell no, you've got two kids, you can go in, I'll give you permission to stop working for a year and to go into politics and try to fix this mess. And I started an organisation in America called Rewiring America, uh, I wrote a book called Electrify, that's it there, it's the American version of this, it's got very American rah-rah jingoism, isn't it? Um, the goal of that book was to have the presidential candidates, because this was before Joe Biden was the, no um, the nominee, but to get all of them to try and say climate change without wincing as though it was painful. Mm. That became advising the Biden administration on how to do this transition. You know, I actually spent the better, most, better part of last year writing with my colleagues and friends a lot of the Build Back Better uh, legislation, particularly focused around household electrification and families and how to do it as an equitable transition. We got defeated by Joe Manchin in December, which really was a defeat that happened before that. The Democrats just didn't have the numbers in the first place. Biden's ambition of 50% reductions by 2030, which he announced on his first day, was the first climate science-based goal any, but announced by any nation, but we're going to fall enormously short of that in the US. Given that, and this is actually the reason I'm hugely excited to be in Australia, you, you've got to have increasingly complicated sort of game theories of, of, of how the world's going to meet its climate commitments. And I think if you wanted the world to go as fast as possible right now, if Australia could just demonstrate that this recipe works in a couple of towns or a couple of cities or preferably a whole state and shows the economics, we could bring the ambition forward of the whole world by a decade. And honestly, there's nothing that would make you more proud to be Australian than if we went from climate prior to golden climate leader. You know, we love winning the Olympics. This is the Olympics of all time and we are poised to win it and we, we should and then the whole world will gravitate towards that because everyone's looking for a good story on a news story that we've had pretty bad news for 30 years. I'm talking to inventor and entrepreneur Saul Griffith about his book, The Big Switch.
one of the biggest energy utilities in the country, has decided it's going to shut down the biggest coal-fired power station in the country, in the Hunter region, I think seven years before it was planned to close. It's a business decision. It's too expensive to produce power that way. And the government is furious about this. Wait, this is the free market government doesn't believe in any influence on industry, right? I mean, what is this telling us about government and politicians and their resistance, if you like, to letting go of fossil fuel power generation? I struggle to figure out what it is in Australia because if they had done their homework, they'd recognise that we have the opportunity to go first and lead and to save money. Obviously, the business that's shutting down that coal plant seven years early, A, recognises that that's how we get closer to a one and a half degree target. You shut down your heaviest emitters first. That's great news for climate. Also, that it's just coal is more expensive than wind and solar now. And I don't understand why our leaders don't get it. I actually really think at the end of the day it's just fragile white male ego. They've been saying the dumb thing for so long that they really struggle to just say, Mia Culper, I was wrong. I mean, I don't really know the energy minister. I don't know Mr. Morrison um, personally, but I would be absolutely fine if they stood up on stage tomorrow and said, you know what, we were wrong. We were trying to do the best. We were trying to protect those communities. You can understand why we had some of these positions, but it looks like now there is a better path. Let's take it. Is, is it the power of the vested interests in those fossil fuel industries, which you know have really been uh, in such a strong position for so long? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we saw this. The there was a hundred million dollars or more behind the natural gas lobbying industry that was fighting us tooth and nail against Build Back Better in the U.S. It was Joe Manchin who has his personal wealth is involved with coal power stations. This may remind you of our energy minister. So absolutely, there's vested interests. We've, we haven't gone as far in ruining our democracy here as America has in terms of money and politics, but you know, the, the amount of money Clive Palmer is putting into politics here is astonishing compared to on, on the good team here in climate-wise. So fossil money is absolutely corrupting Australian politics and we should reject it all at the election. I actually spent a couple of days with Helen Haynes. We should reject money in politics in general in Australia or at least name where every single penny comes from. That's not so much to ask from our politicians. Um, so yes, there's too much money. I, I mean, you know, if you think politics is gonna continue to be politics as usual, there isn't any reason for hope. So I'm really up here to say, you know, there, calm, we can all be calm now. There is a possibility that, and there's even reason for optimism on climate success here. And now actually it's not a technical lift, it's a political lift. And it's about, honestly, it's about up, you know, a grassroots uprising. But those coal-fired power station workers who are going to be losing their jobs years ahead of schedule. You know, they've got families, they've got kids, they've got futures that are all of a sudden got a question mark above them. They're the casualties, I suppose, of the energy transition that we need to make, and they need jobs. How should, how should we help them? Because if we don't help people like them, it simply highlights how brutal the transition is at human scale. And this will not help get people behind a plan like yours. So we do need, don't we, to assist people like that. I am hugely in favour of being incredibly generous towards these communities. And I think if we all stood back and said, mea culpa, no one has known how to solve this problem for 100 years, yet these people have been steadily providing us with our very luxurious, comfortable first world lifestyle during that time, we should be sending meat platters and bouquets to these communities to thank them for 100 years of giving us a reliable energy supply and then you know, reassure them that a couple of these facilities will, will shut down early, but in general, it's gonna take time for everything to become electric. It's gonna take 20 years to wind all these things down. 20 years is a working generation, so the real issue is just don't train your daughter to be in the coal industry. 
the job will go with you. Like, I'm very much hoping that I'm the last person in, my, in the lineage of my family that speaks carburetor as a native tongue, <laughs> um, and that my daughter <laughs> speaks motor controller. And, but I, you know, I think we, we have a generation to transition it out. I think we should pay those, we should help transition those communities in every way, including just, you know, right down to, and I wrote this in the, the American book I wrote, it's not the worst idea in the world to actually help buy out the, the resources. So here's the, the, the naughty problem here is we've, in every one of our retirement funds, is invested in, in the value of fossil fuels that are in the ground. And people, the thing that people really hate is when you take away money they think they've already have. So what's really at play for the fossil companies is the thought that we're going to take away the money that they have already valued on the stock market in terms of their proven reserves. It actually wouldn't be a hugely expensive process to actually give them pennies on the dollar or some portion of the profit for that. And to be perfectly honest, it's the men and women who drive the white trucks, who work for those companies, who have many, many, many of the skills that we need in this enormously rapid transition. They already understand the energy industry, they understand safety, they understand reliability. So there's more than enough jobs for them. You know, you project forward the jobs that will be required to execute this transition on a time, and it's two, three, four million jobs in this country in all of the work we have to do. It's far more than the number of jobs we have to lose. It is absolutely jobs in the regions. In fact, we're going to see an unbelievable flourishing of our regional cities if we do this right. I was just in regional Victoria with Helen Haynes talking to the communities that are thinking about how they do this transition. And we're in one community called Bright. There's about 1,000 households in Bright. It's about 2,500 people. That community currently spends $5 million a year on petrol and electricity that immediately leaves their community. In this future, when that community is, because they can more than generate enough with their solar and other renewables in their community, in the future, they won't be sending that $5 million a year away from the community, they'll be spending about $3 million new dollars in the community that they've saved. That, that, that's true, but on the other hand, if we leave our coal and gas in the ground, currently that's generating vast export revenue for Australia. What the, the, export, argument is, the export revenue argument is very weak in Australia. Let's be pretty clear here. It's about $60 billion in coal. It's about $20 billion a year in... LNG. We don't earn. And then there's the iron ore that we export that gets smelted using fossil fuels. I'm not proposing in any way we we stop our iron ore. I'm saying actually we should do more of it. The world needs it. Our renewables will be so cheap that if we use Australian generated electricity to turn that iron ore into iron or steel okay. here, you could build an $800 billion industry out of the amount of iron ore we we sell today which is 10x the $80 billion, which is the current fossil fuel. But I need to make this point, that's our fossil fuel exports. We import $32 billion a year in oil and petrol. Our profits from the 80 billion don't match the $32 billion that we're spending on the oil. We're net negative on our fossil fuel import-export balance in some real sense. So, so just on that, you can smelt bauxite, iron ore, make steel, aluminium exported from Australia, all using renewable power? Aluminium is already an all-electric process. The carbon emissions from, from aluminium making today are from making the electricity and from burning a carbon-based electrode. There are now processes developed so you don't have to use that electrode. So we should be making all of that alumina with clean electricity. There's multiple pathways to green steel. One is via hydrogen, one is through electrolysis. They are not quite ready yet, but they are, you know, prototype ingots are being made in both cases. It's a few years away. It's absolutely slam dunk going to happen by 2030. If Austra Australia will have the, you know, half, you know, a third to a half of the energy in aluminum and in steel is, uh, the cost of it is the cost of the energy that goes into it. If we have the cheapest renewables in the world making it, we will be making the cheapest iron and steel and aluminum in the world and we will have an advantage. The idea that we would make three or four times more expensive hydrogen 
send that to Japan with our iron ore or to China with our iron ore and have them smelt it there, that will be much more expensive iron or steel than what we make here. So we have this fundamental advantage on exports that you know, should be a great news story and give a lot of comfort to our regions. We, they, they can absolutely win. Uh, Saul, I know a lot of people who've already gone down the path not a lot, a few, who've gone down the path that you're advocating. They're electrifying their homes, they're retrofitting, they've put on the solar rooftop PV, they've uh, invested in the batteries. It's been hard for them, it's been costly, uh, but these people by and large are enthusiasts. They've been on this path for ages, they have money, they're able to do it and they want to do it. But for your plan to work, of course, every house has to make the switch every household, including those people that don't have any spare cash. You can't stump up the money to up front to put in the batteries, to put on the rooftop solar, to get the new appliances that will be needed once you electrify. Even though in the long run, of course, as you've made clear, those people will save money. So I suppose my question is, how do we finance this? How do we provide the low cost financing to allow everyone to make the switch regardless of how much money they have? This is absolutely the, the right question and the biggest thing that we should worry about and find solutions for. It should be obvious we don't eliminate 100% of emissions if only 25% of households can afford it. Um, the good news is the technologies will be cheaper after financing by about 2024 but not everyone has access to financing. In fact, only 50, 60% of households have a good enough credit rating. We need to figure out how to extend other financing mechanisms to those low-income households. There's prototype models for this in the US where effectively, instead of paying your utility or retailer for your electricity, you actually buy from them over time the heat pump in your basement and the solar on your roof and the battery on your side of house. Some of it will be solved with models like that. For the lowest income households, we need subsidies and straight up rebates. Mm. We need to make the, you know, we know in the US that 40% of air conditioners are bought under duress. Your wife's pregnant, it's a hot day or something like that. We need to make the right choice of the efficient air conditioner or the, the heat pump water heater, the cheapest, easiest thing to buy at the point of purchase for everyone in the country. And that means everything from, you know, adding these to, our home loans for the, for, the, for the households that own their things. It means we need to find ways that renters can be included in the yep. benefits. We need to absolutely find ways. This is, you know, in the, in the US it's called the environmental justice movement. Mm. And maybe we have something here that's seemingly active. This is what environmental justice will mean in this transition. It's making sure that everyone can afford this set of things that both solves climate and will pass and on. And redesigning how houses benefits. are built mandates for higher standards in housing, uh, for, for example, double glazing. Uh, you know, um, perfect, we have to, we, 85% of the houses that exist today will be still existing by the time we have to have got to zero emissions. So yes, tomorrow we should have best in world building standards and we should lead the world, but we also have to understand this is a retrofit problem, so we've got to figure out how to do it with what we got. Saul Griffith, inventor, entrepreneur, engineer, and author of The Big Switch. That conversation was recorded at the National Sustainable Living Festival. More details about Saul, his books, and the festival can be found on the Big Ideas homepage. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.